Real Alabama hours up in here for the Ubermensch. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead get up close and personal with the lesser-known legacies and real-life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. It's finally fall. Yes, where we live. Happy decorative gourd season. That's right. It's spring in the southern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And people still live there. Yeah. Christmas in, in the summer. Australia, what are you doing? Yeah, get it together. Come on. But here, it is decorative gourd season. It is. It is. Or, as our neighbors like to tell us, raccoon stealing your pumpkin season. Well, okay. <laughs> that is true. Uh, they did tell us not to put out pumpkins unless we wanted raccoons. So I put out, like... Six, seven pumpkins. Yeah, there's like seven pumpkins out there <laughs> on the front porch right now. Yeah. And I let our dog out in the middle of the night two nights ago, and there were there were raccoons in our yard. Did he fight the raccoons? No, they ran away. Okay. They're not, obviously, they're not very scrappy raccoons. No, they're, they're sneaky ones. Yeah. They're just hungry. They just want some pumpkins. They haven't stolen it yet, though. They've, they're just checking it out. Just checking it out. Yeah, it's like a buffet. They're just going through. They've got their, their little plate in hand. They're <laughs> scanning all the whatever aisles. And then a dog walks in trying to chase them. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, I, I can hear the sound of the plane in the background, which is very fitting for this week's episode. Yeah, it costs a lot of money to schedule that. I know, right? And <laughs> they just keep circling. <laughs> I know, but we're getting our money's worth. Yeah, what do you, so another airplane episode this week. On purpose. Wow. Here we go. All right. We're getting our money's worth. Then uh, don't keep me in suspense. This airplane that we that we so strategically placed in the background of this episode <laughs> uh, signals that who is this week's hero? This week's hero is Charles Lindbergh. What do you know about Charles Lindbergh? Uh, well, I know that he's an aviator. That much is very clear. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he was the precipitating factor in Amelia Earhart's celebrity. So he did mm-hmm. the first transatlantic flight mm-hmm. solo, mm-hmm. I believe. Yes. Which kicked off this whole media fraud about <laughs> <laughs> about Amelia Earhart trying to do one. Um, and then he had the same publicity agent as Amelia Earhart. He did. That was big in our episode last week. He did. And book deals. Yeah. Like major book deals with this PR firm. That's about... No, no, no. Wasn't there also a Leonardo DiCaprio film? Oh, I don't know. Is is he who the aviator is about? I don't know. I thought that was uh, the other one. Hugh, um, the other hero we did. Howard Hughes? Howard Hughes. Hold on. I got to look this up real fast. And we're back. The Leonardo DiCaprio movie is definitely about Howard Hughes. That's definitely. what I thought. That's yeah. what I thought. Not, not Charles Lindbergh at all. We had a whole sidebar during the Howard Hughes episode. Well, I have a bad memory. I mean, we're on, like, episode 84, 85. We have done a lot of these. Sure, sure. Okay, so uh, what I know about him is that he flew across the Atlantic, had the same agent as Amelia Earhart, Mm -hmm. and is not the guy that Leonardo DiCaprio (laughs) was in the aviator. That is about what I know. Okay. Well, I have a lot more information for you. So let's get started. Born February 4th, 1902. And you still have no idea which zodiac sign that is, correct? Uh, no, 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 no. I think I know this one. Hit me with it. The fir- the beginning of the year is, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, 
It's the uh, it's the song the age it's the age of Aquarius is about the so is it Aquarius it's Aquarius yes see it the, is Aquarius mm, look at me look at me on that note it's time for Audrey's astrology corner being an Aquarius born on February fourth their personality is characterized by openness and imagination while there are plenty of people who enjoy mind games they are not one of them their friends and family appreciate the fact that they value truthfulness and straightforwardness above all else but they may be most impressed with their imagination. They have a unique and active mind, which allows them to see angles and possibilities. In social situations, they use their intellect to engage and intrigue others. Aquarians born on February 4th are intelligent and quirky and can give the impression of being airheads when in reality, they are more practical than they seem. So let's see if the uh, stereotype of Charles Lindbergh, the famous airhead, holds up. Airhead, airplane. See, it that's works. A, that's not a stretch a, at all. It's a quick leap. It's just uh, logic to logic to logic. <laughs> Newfound respect for this science. <laughs> Born in Detroit, Michigan, but he spent most of his childhood in Minnesota. So very hardy Midwestern. He was the only child of his parents, but he did have three older half-sisters. Uh, shockingly, his parents separated when he was seven, which was a big deal in 1909. Oh, yeah. It didn't happen very frequently. It did not. But his family came from means and power. His father was a U.S. congressman. Uh, in fact, he was one of the only congresspeople to oppose World War One. Mm. interestingly enough. And his mother was a chemistry teacher at the high school that he attended. For early 20th century standards, his family was fairly progressive. He went to college for a year and a half, but dropped out in 1922, decided right then to attend aviation school in Nebraska. He had never even been close enough to a plane to touch the wing. He, he decided to go to aviation school before he had ever touched an airplane. Yes. He was just like, this is, this is my destiny. I have to do it. I mean, frankly, I kind of get it only because we take a lot of airlines, commercial flight for granted. But if you're in the part of human history where we're making the transition from nobody for millions of years has ever been flying to <laughs> now humans can fly, I could be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm on board with that. Like, It's kind of like the SpaceX missions right now. Like, if you could get on one, you would go. Oh, yeah, for sure. For if you sure, could pilot sure. one tomorrow, you would pilot one. I don't know if I would actually take controls tomorrow. Okay. I would say, is there anybody here who's a little bit more experienced than me? <laughs> but, yeah, if I could get on board, I would. Well, that's what he does. He gets to Nebraska. He takes his very first flight as a passenger. Within a few weeks, he starts lessons. He's flying and taking lessons, but the school that he was learning to fly at never let him fly alone because he did not have enough money to post what was called damage bond. Like, just in case he crashed it, he did not have enough money for that. He couldn't pay for the rental car insurance of the airplane. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> so naturally, in order to make enough money, he leaves Nebraska and goes to Kansas to become a barnstormer. Man, you know what they've always said. If you want to go where the big money is... Go to Kansas. Head to Kansas. <laughs> exactly. Do you know what a barnstormer is? Okay, I think so. Uh, one, we're in the Midwest, so I feel like I should know this. I think... But here's what I thought it was, actually. I thought it was like an Amish thing. I know they have you these, like... You think it's a barn razor. It's I not think it's a, a barn, barn razor. razor. Yeah, I don't... No. I didn't think that was the same thing. No, it's not. Oh, then I know. I know. I know. I know. Okay, so I think I know this now from classic cinema. You probably do. I can't remember which movie it is. If it's a Hitchcock movie, there's a black and white movie scene where this dude is flying the crop duster plane mm -hmm. at this guy towards a barn, and then at one point they crash into a barn. Is like a famous movie scene. I don't know. Anyway, it's a crop duster who's flying past barns really fast because he's dusting the crops. 
No. I'm no. totally wrong on both You're of my totally guesses. You're totally wrong. Okay. But, but it is like a prop plane. Got it. And a barnstormer is a passenger who gets out and walks on the wings and parachutes and performs for crowds of people in fields. Whoa, that's way better than what I was <laughs> expecting. I guess lame stuff. Yeah. So he's in Kansas, Nebraska, all over the Midwest, barnstorming. He, he just gets out, walks on the wing, performs a few tricks, and parachutes down into the audience. It's like a stunt show. It's a stunt show. Whoa. Yeah. Wait, okay, here's my question, though. If your business model is, I'm going to go walk on the wing of this plane and jump out into the crowd. Mm-hmm. Where do you make money? Where does that part come in? I mean, I think they have to pay to see it. It's, yeah, but here's the problem with that. Anybody could watch anybody it. Anybody could watch it. Like, if you're just doing it. I think it's it. like airfields. I think it's like at, they're like at specific places. Okay, okay. Yeah. And just like this, it's like we just paid this barnstormer mm-hmm. to interrupt our podcast. Exactly. It's like that. Okay, okay. You have so an attraction. You want to get people to your show. Get a promoter. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, so he's yeah. hired to go walk on the wings of planes. Really cool. He's a spectacle. In 1923, he's 21. He finds a World War I plane on sale for $500 and buys it. Decides, fuck it. I'm going to fly despite not having a pilot's license. Didn't finish. <laughs> Did not finish. Pilot school dropout is not a great, great way to start your career. He doesn't want to pay the damage bond. He just wants to take his 500 bucks and buy his own plane. Okay. He buys his plane and he nicknames it Ginny. Within a, a week... Of getting Jenny in his very first solo flight, he's like, it's time to fly across the United States. Oh, wow. Okay. He's only logged five to 10 hours of pilot in command status at this point. Don't you need like several hundred or several <laughs> thousand to be a pilot? To be a commercial pilot now, like to be the pilot, I think you need at least 10,000 hours. I, but it could be tens of thousands of hours. Okay. It's okay. 1923. He has his own plane. I don't think... Who's going to stop him? The air police? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> no. Air police didn't exist you're yet. Just, yeah, you're just taking off from fields. <laughs> He's in Georgia, decides, I'm going to fly to Alabama. Fuck it. Why not? He makes the 140-mile journey safely. And this one flight alone really bolsters his confidence. Okay. This wasn't across the United States to start. He only makes it from Georgia to Alabama. Got it. And then he decides, barnstorming is where the money's at if you're the pilot. He decides he's going to start his own barnstorming company or brigade or show. I don't know what you would call it. Troop? As the pilot. A troop? Mm-hmm. Okay. But he's got to convince somebody. He's like, hey, I've got five hours experience. You want to come walk on the wings of this plane? <laughs> yeah. I think I think it's really um, – I can just imagine the pitch – you have to have a certain amount of confidence. Maybe they don't even ask you how many hours. You're just like, I know how to fly this plane. Yeah, there's a very good chance, depending on how fast this plane was going and, and like where he started and stopped, that this flight from Georgia to Alabama... It took like half a day, okay. 140 miles. Like you could drive it. It was it was most of the flying experience he'd ever had. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it was the majority the of his career yeah. on that one flight. <laughs> yes. He becomes a relatively well-known barnstormer. As far as barnstormers go. Okay. He delivers mail, like mail via plane becomes a thing. And he's like, yeah, I think I could get in on that. And the thing is, he was a, like, quote unquote, good enough pilot, but he was not a fantastic aviator. He, during this time, routinely broke his plane's propellers while landing all the time, like all the time. At one point, he's taking his congressman father on a flight to a campaign stop. 
they're supposed to make this grand entrance. Like, look, this congressperson is so great that he comes in on a plane. This is something we would take for granted now. But this was the most novel of beyond novel things at the time. Anyway, they're on their way to make this grand entrance. And instead of being smooth, cool pilot Lindbergh, he fucking crashes his plane in a ditch with his dad in tow in front yes. of a whole crowd. They, they survived, though. Oh, yeah, they survived. Yeah, these are not high-impact crashes. They're just sloppy landings. Got it, got it's it. It's almost like he didn't finish aviation school <laughs> and he cannot stick the landing. Like, I really should have stuck around for the landing part. <laughs> landing part. Takeoff flight seems to be going okay. Yeah, landing is really the, the hardest part if you if you think about it. Yes. Nobody I, crashes into the sky. <laughs> <laughs> I am very scared of flying. You know this. And one time I sat next to a pilot and basically he was like the first 60 seconds Takeoff, 60 seconds, last 60 seconds landing. Those were the most dangerous parts. Just count to 100, and then it's like smooth sailing. You're fine. You're fine. Crashes his plane, spends about a week fixing it, and then sells it to some guy in Iowa. 18, 24 months later, it's 1924, 25, he decides he's going to enroll in the Air Force, become a legitimate pilot. He does a year of military flight training. His father's real bummed out about that because well, he's anti-war. Okay, yeah. His dad was the only one to object to World War One. But uh, you got to admit, it's pretty clever. If you can't afford the insurance at flight school, who will let you fly and crash your planes for free? The U.S. military. That's exactly right. And I'll tell you what. He spends a year there. It's mostly uneventful, except for that one in-air collision with another trainee. In-air collision? Yeah, that the, they both survive. The sky is pretty big. It's very big. And he managed to hit another plane. He did. Okay. He did. He also manages to graduate at the top of his class despite this. Tells you a lot about the other pilots then. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, I, listen, if flying was a new skill. You're bound to mess up. You know, anytime you're learning a new skill, it's hit or miss. This just feels much higher stakes than, like, shooting an air ball when you're playing basketball. I would imagine that mid-air collisions is not something that it is a given you will survive. Mm. So, yeah, mm -hmm. Lucky makes it out. Graduates 1925. Obviously, the U.S. is not engaged in a war. And so he does the only thing he knows how to do to make money as a pilot. Returns to barnstorming. You know what they say about being a barnstormer. I, I know very little of what anyone says about storming barns. You make more money as a pilot, <laughs> but you have more fun as a wing walker. <laughs> That's right. It's the same, it's the same approach to um, joining a cult. Yes. More money as a leader, more fun as a follower. Well, it seems like barnstormers in general were having a lot of fun. Because I don't know if you know this about barnstormers, but apparently they had quite the reputation for being womanizers. Oh. And uh, as promiscuous as minor celebrities are wont to be. Mm hmm But not Charles Lindbergh. In fact, in his first autobiography, he criticized barnstormers and army cadets for their quote, facile approach to relationships. He wrote that the ideal romance was stable and long-term with a woman with keen intellect, good health, and strong genes. Okay, uh, we're just going to say about the fact that this is his first autobiography. How <laughs> full your subject to be to write multiple autobiographies for only living one life? Let's start there. But separately... I was kind of expecting good teeth to be the last thing, but genes <laughs> make sense, kind of, you know, encompasses the teeth thing. Yeah, okay, okay. I, I kind of get uh, the vibe he's given off at this point. Yeah, we can read between the lines. It's red flag number one. Yeah, he's looking for good breeding stock. I mean, he literally goes on to say that, quote, 
his experience in breeding animals on our farm. What? Having taught him the importance of good heredity. Oh, shit. Okay, so he's, like, making the direct comparison to farm animals at this point for his women. Yes, he's like, I would like good genes, and I would like to breed them like cattle. Yikes. And, you know, it really makes you think back to all the places where you've heard about people picking mates and procreating based on perceived superiority of genes in the late 1920s, 1930s. I don't know. I mean, it's coincidence. There was a large eugenics movement picking up steam in the United States, mm-hmm. for sure, and over in Europe. So he does the barnstormer, like, bullshit for a few more years, blah, blah, blah. And then in 1927, like you mentioned, he becomes the first person to make the transatlantic flight solo, specifically from New York to Paris. And he does this in order to win the $25,000 prize that was put up for this flight. And it had to be specifically from those two locations. Other people had done it like New York to London-ish or no, like Amelia Earhart eventually did Canada to <laughs> Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so he wasn't even the first transatlantic flight? So I don't know the specifics. I know he was the first transatlantic from New York to Paris. Interesting. And that was the big publicized, it has to be these things. Because it got you to the European mainland and mm-hmm. it won you this prize, whatever it was. It did. That's what they decided. Yes. So this is what he's really known for at first. It's this like coming together of all the right forces. He actually barely makes it. Like Amelia Earhart, he is not a good aviator. He is not good at uh, reading a map. He does not believe in radio signaling. He thinks it makes pilots weak. What? And also it's very foggy and very bad weather. He's He has been in the Air Force and he's crashed into another plane in midair and he's like, yeah, radios are for wussies. What? Yeah. No, he really wants to do it on his own. He ends up at one point very high up, at one point very close to the ocean. <laughs> he hallucinates. It's a whole big hullabaloo. He, has, he does not like 33 and a half hours, but he does it. Shoots him to immediate stardom. Just like we talked about, it's not on accident. This $25,000 prize had been uh, orchestrated, organized by G.P. Putnam and that entire... Media promotion machine. Yeah. In addition to the media coverage and tons of press, within two months of landing... G.P. Putnam's Sons published Lindbergh's first, first 308-page biography. Okay, okay. He's 25 years old, two months after this flight. Man, the audacity of writing your autobiography at 25, right? Also, barely makes it through high school. He drops out of college. You think that two months, 60 days is all it's going to take him to write 318 pages of his own autobiography? Yeah, there's no way he wrote that. No way. I'm sure he contributed. I'm sure he said things like women are like cattle. I read them like that, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but he didn't do the majority of this autobiography. It's like it's like um, Khloe Kardashian's autobiography. Oh, sure. Yes. <laughs> Ghostwritten to the extreme. All this happens 1927. The same year, another major thing happens for him. He meets a woman named Anne Morrow. Apparently, good genetics. And Lindbergh knows she has good genetics because her father is a high-ranking U.S. ambassador and partner at J.P. Morgan Chase. Oh, is that what it takes to yeah, you just, have good genetics? Yeah, rich and well-connected. Got it, got it. Clearly good genes. By 1929, Anne and Charles are married. Charles' aviation expertise continues to be in demand, but he also starts getting interested in other scientific pursuits. 
And one of these pursuits is trying to figure out how to make artificial organs that can be implanted to replace faulty organs, specifically the heart. Whoa. Okay. Back in like the 30s? 1929. He's trying to grow artificial hearts. Yes. He has a sister-in-law who has a fatal heart defect. So he begins working with Nobel Prize winning scientist Alexis Carroll. And Alexis Carroll and Charles Lindbergh actually do eventually invent a model of vascular pump that would go on to lead the way for early heart pumps, and they actually worked. Wow, that's that's huge. Alexis Carroll also eventually goes on to write a book called Man, the Unknown, which is the first manifesto on positive eugenics. Oh, yikes. And you know what positive eugenics is? Yes. Do you want to explain it or do you want me to? Positive eugenics is the eugenics that we... No from the Nazis, but focused on kind of breeding the ultimate person as opposed to just getting rid of defects. That's right. Yes. So people with, quote unquote, superior genes should reproduce a lot. Whereas negative eugenics is you want to limit a certain amount of procreation for people who you think have inferior genes. Yeah. So a lot of the eugenics um, that Nazism focused on was about, you know, removing people they considered inferior from the population, Mm -hmm. right? People with disabilities, uh, people who are gay. The positive eugenics is the flip side of that same exact coin, which is just focusing on having the people who you consider to have, quote unquote, superior genes, having the most kids. And this gets Charles Lindbergh thinking and procreating. So not uncoincidentally around this time, Charles and Anne's first son is born. This is Charles Lindbergh Jr. Perhaps even more famous than his flight is the fact that Charles Jr. is kidnapped and killed one night while they're uh, at home in New Jersey. Holy shit. Wait, kidnapped from the house? You don't know that Charles Lindbergh, the Lindbergh baby story? No. I mean, that phrase like vaguely sounds familiar, but I definitely don't know the story. Okay. Sorry. I'm I'm not quite caught up on my like 1920s era gossip from the celebrities. This was not gossip. This created a whole bunch of new policy. This is what makes kidnapping and um, moving people across state lines a felony. It's a whole big thing. Wait, it was a crime before, right? Well, the killing was. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. So this kid is kidnapped in the middle of the night, held for ransom, later come to find out through like months of back and forth with these people that eventually, like they find the baby and he's died. And it's very clear he died the first night that he was kidnapped. A whole bunch of conspiracy theories around it. Oh, shit. So they were trying to get money from Charles Lindbergh is what they yes. were trying to do. Yes. But they clearly fucked it up right at this jump. Right. I'm not actually going to tell this story. There's just so many podcasts about it. Um, there's a My Favorite Murder episode about Charles Lindbergh. There's entire books. Uh, but this, again, puts a spotlight on his family. One sort of like big conspiracy about this Lindbergh baby kidnapping includes the fact that Charles Jr. was a very sickly child. And so some people surmise that Charles Sr. had him either kidnapped and then he accidentally died and or institutionalized so as not to ruin the appearance of his superior genes. Oh, shit. If you're, yeah, if you make your brand about like breeding superior people and your first kid has a disability or is or not a disability, just sick, right? Very sickly. Sick. Yeah. Yeah, that does, does kind of undermine your credibility. So, again, this is just a theory. There's no concrete evidence it's true, but it is something that comes up time and time again when this story is told. After the death of his son, there's, again, a media 
coverage of the trial of the killers, Charles starts to get really frustrated by this lack of privacy. And uh, he he learns that being a manufactured celebrity has its downsides. So he decides he's going to secretly move his family to Europe. First, they move to England, eventually France. But during this time, he and Anne have five more children. Just trying to get away from it all. Go yes. breed superior people in peace. Yes. By then, it's the late 1930s. And uh, it's a really unsettling time to actually pick up your family and move to Europe. Yeah, it's true. Most people move in the other direction at that point. Right. In 1936, Lindbergh received a letter from Major Truman Smith, and he's living in England. And this major is a military attache at the American embassy in Berlin. And he says, hey, the U.S. needs intel on German planes. General Hermann Goring, the head of the Luftwaffe, Mm -hmm. uh, the German Air Force, was generally, as you can imagine, not inclined to let foreigners come inspect the planes. Sure. But this is Charles Lindbergh, a celebrity. Oh, yeah. I guess you get you get all kinds of access. So Lindbergh flies to Germany with Anne as his co-pilot. Wait, Anne, his wife? Yeah, he's taught her to fly. She's the co-pilot. Ooh. And wouldn't you know it, they step off the plane, they're greeted with the Nazi salute, and a whole crowd chanting, Hail Hitler. Uh, oh, wow. That's mm-hmm. quite the greeting mm-hmm. in the 30s in Germany. Mm-hmm. So for several days, Lindbergh toured German airfields fi- air and airplane factories accompanied by Major Smith. Mm-hmm. He spent a day with Luftwaffe pilots who not only invited Lindbergh to inspect their planes, but actually allowed him to fly several. Oh. He legitimately gets a ton of intel including sites of military airfields, like 70 of them. Oh, what? wait, 70? Yes. he's flying over them all. No, well, that and General Goring, the head of the military German Air Force, at one point just like shows him a book. He's like, here's where we're building all of our planes. Oh, okay. This is very effective. To Lindbergh's credit, he does relay all of this information to high-ranking American military leaders but he said that he believed the German aircraft were the best in the world and potentially unbeatable. In 1938, he's given a Medal of Honor by Adolf Hitler for some reason or another. Wait, he shows up. Mm-hmm. Do they realize that he's passing all their secrets on to the Americans? I don't believe so. No, he and a, a couple other American pilots received this honor. Oh, okay. So this is before the war. They're just like being nice about it, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, it's obviously very complicated sort of political situation at the time. But there's no indication that this was um, Lindbergh trying to get praise from the Nazis. They're like at a dinner and they give him this award. And he was like, it was just would have been weird to say no. It's just like diplomatic weirdness to start with. Yes. Okay. And then in 1939, for whatever reason... After Hitler starts invading Poland and Czechoslovakia, Lindbergh is like, hey, this is my time to make a nationwide radio address in which I'm going to say that the U.S. should stick to a policy of isolationism. And he not so subtly sympathizes with Germany and Hitler's army. He gets involved in the America First organization and campaigns against entering World War II. Yeah, okay, so we just threw that out there. Do you have more on this? Because I just want to take a beat, if you you don't, to describe what America First is. You can go ahead and describe it. Sure. So America First, uh, very familiar from the Trump campaign 2016 in the United States. But before that, the exact phrase America First 
was specifically used to describe the American political movement that said, yes, the Nazis are taking over Europe, but it's really none of our business. So let them, if they can take the European countries, let them have the European countries and let's just be friends with the Nazis. They get Europe, we get to North America, and like America first means we just focus on our own shit, which is strikingly similar to exactly what happened in 2016. The other part of this, and there are a ton of very prominent politicians and world leaders who are involved in America first back then. But the other part of this is that a lot of America first policy recommendations are because they believe that Germany controlling Europe would be better than if we went, took it back from Germany or stopped Germany and then let Soviet Russia come take over Europe. They thought communism was really going to be the thing that like, it's probably better for at least a fascist, the German fascist to have Europe than the Soviets. Yeah. Like if you had to choose between the Russian communists and the white Aryan Christian fascists, Mm -hmm. like- Come on. Choice is obvious if you're them. I, too, am generally anti-war in the vast majority of situations. This is not one of those situations. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's true, right? Like, there is this whole thing about, like, when, you know, this isn't, quote-unquote, the last good war, right? Like, when do you have enough of a threat of real uh, consequences to justify the immense human cost of actually going to war? Yeah, definitely sympathize with anybody who is like, you know, we should try to avoid war if we can. That is a different thing from being like... Yeah, the Christianarian fascists should probably be able to take over. Right. And so Lindbergh spends years campaigning against U.S. intervention. Hitler is terrorizing Europe. And um, not only does Lindbergh use his platform to say the U.S. shouldn't be involved, he says things like, quote, it's only the Jews in America who want us to go to war to get back at Hitler. Uh, After Kristallnacht in November 1938, Lindbergh wrote in his diary, quote, I do not understand these riots on the parts of the Germans. It seems so contrary to their sense of order and intelligence. They have undoubtedly had a difficult, quote, Jewish problem, but why is it necessary to handle it so unreasonably? He continued, We must limit to a reasonable amount the Jewish influence. Whenever the Jewish percentage of total population becomes too high, a reaction seems to invariably occur. It is too bad because a few Jews of the right type are, I believe, an asset to any country. Like we mentioned at the top of the podcast, he's at the same time getting more and more into eugenics, as one does if you're a white supremacist in the 30s and 40s with access to people like Alexis Carroll. He buddies up to Henry Ford. Oh, who, who, if you remember from that episode, Mm -hmm. big old Nazi. Yes. Huge pro-Nazi sympathizer. He starts talking about the, quote, racial strength of various countries. So he thought communism was a plan to replace everyone of European descent with quote, a pressing sea of yellow, black, and brown. And he said he'd rather see America allied with Germany than Soviet Russia. Uh, And in my opinion, it's kind of like, maybe neither. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's true. Well, we did end up partnering with the Soviets there. Uh, But I do think (laughs) it is interesting that, like, the boogeyman of communism, it is just striking how consistent this is and how, like, today's themes just tie back back to the people who are like, be friends with Hitler. Come on, people. It's that easy. Right. In a Reader's Digest article at this time, he wrote, quote, we can have peace and security only so long as we band together to preserve that most priceless possession, our inheritance of European blood, only so long as we guard ourselves against attack by foreign armies and dilution by foreign races. Man. White supremacy, hell of a drug. Yeah, I mean, he legitimately said certain races have, quote, demonstrated superior ability in the design, manufacture, and operation of machines, 
and that, quote, the growth of our Western civilization has been closely related to this superiority. And Lindbergh admired, quote, the German genius for science and organization, the English genius for government and commerce, the French genius for living in the understanding of life. And he believed, quote, in America, they can be blended to form the greatest genius of all. Okay, so we over the last few minutes, we basically had him tiptoeing from like, okay, I'm interested in having a wife who I breathe like an animal, like in <laughs> yeah. very generic sense, uh, to like going and visiting Germany to like gather intel for America to like getting some awards, like full on Nazi eugenics, like propaganda on the on the United States side. Exactly. After Pearl Harbor, Lindbergh conveniently tries to get involved. Uh, he wants to fly for the U.S. military. And President Roosevelt was like, absolutely not, you Nazi. Mm, yeah, good call, good call. He does not allow him to serve in the military. Uh, and so Charles Lindbergh ends up flying, like, private commercial flights for private companies deliver- delivering goods and stuff. He's, again, like, doing mail. <laughs> yeah. Eventually the war ends, his celebrity status fades, and he stops making so many public appearances. Yeah, it's hard when your side loses. Yeah, right? So he and his family still travel and live in the U.S. and Europe. And beginning in 1957, when he's 55, while stationed in Germany for some business opportunity, Charles Lindbergh, who publicly preached about family values, strong values, genetics, blah, 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 begins an affair with not one, but three women. Simultaneously. With one, Brigitte, he ends up having three children. With Brigitte's sister, Mariette, he has two children. And with his secretary, Valeska, he has two more children. Wow, that's just a lot to keep track of. In case you're counting, all all of that combined with his five other children brings the known children of Charles Lindbergh to at least 12 surviving. Again, he believed himself to have superior genes, and uh, many historians note that fathering this number of children was likely not accidental. Okay, yeah, so he was not being sloppy with affairs. He was just trying to make up for the fact that he could only get his wife pregnant one kid at a time, basically. Correct. Yeah, and she was past childbearing age at that point. Uh, okay. So he had access to women and you know enough means to support them, the privacy of working in Germany while his wife was in the U.S. Wait, he stays in Germany after the war? He goes back and forth. This is 1957, so this is like okay. 12 years later. He's back and forth. He's all over Europe doing deals of Got it. whatever variety. Wheeling and dealing. Wheeling and dealing. Maybe does some, I, I don't think it's diplomatic work, but it could be. Seems like that would be a sloppy choice, but, mm-hmm. you know. He wants to have all these children, but the important thing for Charles Lindbergh is that these children stay secret. What? Yes, and no one knew about Charles Lindbergh's secret children for almost 50 years. This includes all of Charles Lindbergh's secret children. Wait, they didn't realize that he was their dad? No. What? So 10 days before he dies, Lindbergh wrote to each of his European mistresses, imploring them to maintain the secrecy about these illicit activities, even after his death. All three women, none of them ever married, managed to keep the secret even from their children. They just knew Charles Lindbergh came in and out uh, with visits, and they called him Karu Kent, 
who was ostensibly just like a family friend who was visiting Europe and hanging out. Oh, we didn't call him like Uncle Lindbergh or anything? No, a fake name. He visited them once or twice a year. But then, after reading a magazine article about Lindbergh in the like late 80s, early 90s, Brigitte's daughter Astrid deduced the truth. She saw photos and realized that Charles Lindbergh was Carew Kent. At the same time, discovered snapshots and 150 letters from Lindbergh to her mother. And so after Brigitte and Anne Lindbergh had both died, she made her findings public. And in 2003, DNA tests confirmed that Lindbergh had fathered Astrid, her two siblings, and those... uh, The kids from the other families, too. The kids from the other families. Wow. That is wild. That he got, not just that he did it, but that he got away with it for so long. Yes, exactly. So Lindbergh's youngest, I I want to say legitimate child, all children are legitimate, the one with Anne, uh, was a girl named Reeve. And after finding out about her secret half-siblings, she, you know, put out a statement, wrote articles, and she said, quote, I have the feeling that he was the only person involved with all these families who knew the full truth. Oh, like the other... The other mothers didn't know about all the other secret families. I think the sisters knew because two of them were sisters. Oh, I didn't catch that. Okay. So, yeah, he had children who were half-sibling cousins. Yes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Real Alabama hours up in here for the Ubermensch. (laughs) Right. Uh, Reeve continued... I keep thinking that by the time he died in 1974, my father had made his life so complicated that he had to keep keep each part separate from the other. I don't know why he lived this way, and I don't think I will ever know. But what it means to me is that every intimate human connection my father had during his later years was fractured by secrecy. Lindbergh and his wife eventually moved to Hawaii, where at the age of 72, he dies of lymphoma. And so, for the white supremacy, the... uh, enthusiastic promotion of eugenics, the pro-Nazi sympathies, the secret family, and all the other weird shit that goes into believing he had superior genetics. Charles Lindbergh is not my hero. I'm always shocked by how quickly and smoothly all of these Nazi Americans just like slip back into mainstream society after this war is over. Like that part is always wild to me. Every time. Not just mainstream uh, like society, still celebrity status. Yeah, like they're they're public figures still. We're talking about like Henry Ford, Charles Lindbergh, Coco Chanel. Arguably the faces of cars, planes, and snazzy tweed Pantsuits. Yes, fashion, right? Fashion, like, yeah. <laughs> there's so, yeah, I'm sure there's tons more than just, you know. Slip in our mind. Yes, but the fact that, like, he goes and it's not like he descends into some sort of, you know, exile. No, he's just, like, out conducting business, living the high life, and then having secret families for the rest of his years. Yeah, having his cake and eating it, too. Um, and perfectly timed our barnstormers back. Book in this episode. Yeah. Very grateful to the pilots who uh, provided the sound effects for this episode. If people enjoyed this episode, are finished listening to it, but would like more, almost as if they would like to have their cake and eat it too. Until next week, where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep. And please like, share, rate, review. 
spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.